Welcome to Sleep Well, the podcast that reveals the science behind one of the most fundamental, yet most mysterious of human behaviours, sleep. I'm Dr. Caroline Horton, and I'm a psychologist and director of Dreams Lab. I also really love sleep, so personally, as well as professionally, I know how important it is for our mental and physical health. Throughout this series, I'll be talking to guests about their common sleep complaints and offering evidence-based tips for getting their all-important shut-eye. Together, we'll evaluate the evidence that sleep improves all aspects of health and well-being, and whether it really is that ultimate panacea. This episode explores what sleep is and why we might need it. Is it enough to say that we'll sleep when we're dead, or is it true that if we don't sleep, we'll die sooner? We tend to know when we've been sleeping, and we often know when we haven't had enough. Sleep is both fundamental and universal. If we Google a definition of sleep, we'll learn that sleep is a condition of body and mind which typically recurs for several hours every night. This sounds pretty accurate. We tend to know when we've been sleeping and we generally know what state we're referring to. Indeed, we learn this about sleep from very early in life, highlighting its essential and vast roles in our lives. The definition continues to describe sleep as a state in which the nervous system is inactive and consciousness practically suspended. We recognise that the state of sleep changes our body and to some extent our minds, but in terms of the brain being inactive, thankfully that's simply factually inaccurate. The idea that consciousness is suspended we'll return to in detail in later episodes, but let's just say for now that you might sleep very deeply and even say that you were dead to the world, but you were still conscious with a highly active nervous system and a good job too. Indeed, during some parts of sleep, your brain is, on average, more active than when you are awake. Both our body and brain shifts into a state that allows us to rejuvenate to some extent when we're asleep. We use less energy and conserve stores for the next day. If we tire ourselves out physically in the day, that drive for sleep then is particularly strong. To be specific, we then need more restorative sleep to help repair muscles and to boost the immune system. But the brain also benefits in a range of ways. Sleep isn't one single state, but rather a series of changing states. If we are awoken from different states, we might detect that not all sleep is the same. That deep restorative sleep is tricky to be woken from, for example, as we desperately want to get back to it. But when we first fall asleep and enter a lighter stage, if we're awoken then, we might not even realise that we've been asleep at all and might deny it. The body changes in accordance with these different states too, or stages of sleep as we call them, in terms of muscle tension, temperature, rate of breathing and extent of movement. And our brains change in some really fascinating ways as well. For a start, our eyes are generally closed, so we eliminate some degree of our ability to perceive our external environments. But we then start focusing inwards, whether we're aware of that or not. When we first go to sleep, we quite quickly move through these stages to that deep sleep state, which is prioritised in about the first half of the night in a typical eight-hour sleep stint. The brain does something incredible here, in that brain cells or neurons all communicate with each other at the same time as if they're all singing in a chorus. This never happens when we're awake, where there's much more varied uh, activity in different parts of the brain. We don't stay like this in this state for many minutes. We dip in 
and then out again into the lighter states, each of which are characterised by distinct patterns of brain behaviour. These brain patterns are the key defining features of these different stages of sleep, of which there were three what we call non-rapid eye movement stages, with stage three being the deepest and one the lightest. And then there's rapid eye movement sleep state as well, or REM. As the name suggests, the eyes dart about rapidly at that time. Interestingly, they can mimic patterns of movements of the eyes from before going to sleep. But apart from those eye movements and the respiratory system, which helps keep us breathing, we're virtually paralysed during REM. Heart rate increases and patterns of brain activity are almost the opposite of those smooth, rhythmical, singing type patterns of activity that we see when we're deep asleep. Instead, during REM, brain activity is less coordinated and more haphazard. This period occurs around every 90 minutes or so if we have continuous sleep. But the first REM periods of the night are much shorter than the later ones with less deep sleep and more lengthy bouts of REM continuing as the night goes on. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine has helped us to develop coding measures to help us identify these different stages of sleep. And they're based on electrophysiological activity of the brain. In essence, that involves putting electrodes, sticky little pads on the top of the scalp, which act like mini amplifiers that can measure and then increase how much electrical activity is going on underneath the scalp in the brain. Every time a single brain cell communicates or sends a message to another, it emits a very tiny electrical charge. If that happens thousands or millions of times over, we can detect greater periods of, uh, of activity and electricity in particular regions. When we see big bouts of electricity at a certain time and then less, that's when we can see these coordinated and beautiful bouts of singing brain cells all communicating together. So whilst we have these electrophysiological measures called EEG that help sleep scientists and medics to decipher which sleep stage someone may be in at a particular time, that's clearly not the kind of measure that we might use when we just go to sleep at night or even have a nap in the day to know that we've been asleep. We tend to just know. We know that we've been doing something different and we can still have enough consciousness to know approximately how long we've been asleep for and how much time has passed. In addition to that, there are endless apps and other measures that might claim to help us identify not just if we've been asleep, but almost how good our sleep has been. You might have a smartwatch that might use an accelerometer to measure movement, and that can help us have a reasonable guess as to whether we've essentially been laying it down, moving little or moving a lot. There are endless apps for recording sounds and breathing rates, even trying to record movement by putting a phone on a mattress. I mean, bear in mind that if you share a bed or have a pet, you can instantly cast doubt on the validity of those. But they each try to measure a different feature of sleep. Some of them try to measure numerous features. Your smartwatch might have an accelerometer and it might also track your heart rate as well and use those combined features to estimate which sleep stage you've been in. Moreover, 
we tend to use the good old fashioned method of self-report to estimate whether we've had good sleep or poor sleep and how we feel afterwards. Unfortunately, we're notoriously bad at estimating how much sleep we've had and that's particularly true if we're sleep deprived. In some cases, you might feel like you haven't slept a wink, but in truth you have, just perhaps not as much as you would have liked. In truth, the vast majority of us aren't sleeping enough. We've all heard that we need around eight hours a night, and whilst there might be very small amounts of individual variation as to what we might need, this ballpark figure is well supported by evidence. Sleeping seven rather than eight hours a night, for example, can lead to reduced academic performance, and we've seen that in school children as well as university students, reduced memory accessibility, even a greater risk of cardiovascular disease like heart attacks and strokes. It's been estimated that around 48% of adults in the US sleep for between seven and eight hours a night. This is the National Sleep Foundation's recommendations for older adults to sleep seven to eight hours a night. But for younger adults, that recommendation is between seven and nine hours, and it's between eight and 10 for teenagers. So that's quite a lot higher than the average adult's estimation. This together is a substantive period of our lives that we should be asleep for. So surely sleep is important. Indeed, it's an undisputed biological necessity. So why aren't we leaping somewhere comfortable to curl up, relax and reap those benefits? Well, there are a whole host of reasons, with anxiety or problems switching off affecting some, and what we call poor sleep hygiene or unhealthy sleep habits affecting many, and a whole world of 24-7 connectivity to tempt us away from our slumber. But as we'll see throughout this series, we really could benefit from prioritising our shatai. There are clearly a wide range of methods for exploring sleep, ranging from the neuroscientific explorations of brain activity that we mentioned earlier across sleep stages, to more psychiatric interests in sleep disorders and other comorbidities like anxiety or depression, to cultural explorations of the nature of nightlife, for example, or epidemiological interests in sleep quality and quantity across different populations. We can't all attach EEG electrodes to our scalps to measure brain activity, but we can start taking note of how we feel when we pay attention to our sleep. As a psychologist, I know that this can be really helpful, but it can also present challenges, as sometimes people present to us their sleep complaints, which may be really causing severe distress to them, but the underlying cause might not be sleep at all. I spoke to a fellow sleep psychologist and sleep researcher, Dr Simon Durrant, to find out more about some common sleep myths and misconceptions. Welcome to Dr. Simon Durrant, co-director of the Lincoln Sleep Research Centre and leader of the Sleep and Cognition Laboratory at the University of Lincoln, where he's also a senior lecturer in psychology. Hi there, Simon. Hi, good to see you. Likewise, thank you for joining us. Now, I know we share some common research interests, um, but can you tell us a bit about your work in the sleep lab in Lincoln? Yeah, we cover a variety of of different topics within sleep, but our core research really is on sleep and the brain. So sleep in terms of memory and cognition, the way it benefits uh, memory and cognition. Um, We do branch out into related areas. So for example, we look at how you can enhance sleep by uh, manipulating brain activity through either playing sounds or electrical stimulation. 
we look at the benefits of different types of sleep for certain disorders, for example, diabetes. Um, we do also look at sleep in a more general public health way. So we have some work where we look at sleep in the student population, which is uh, traditionally rather poor. Um, and we were looking specifically at sleep in student nurses um, recently. And previously, we've also looked at sleep actually in older populations who also uh, have more fragmented sleep. So we cover, cover a variety of things, really. But cognition and memory is really where we're at. Um, what kind of insights have you had into um, your students and, and your student colleagues and their perceptions of sleep? Yeah, students are interesting. There have been surprisingly few studies actually of sleep in UK students. So the, the sleep, the student sleep studies tend to be based mostly in America and, and other parts of the world, very few in the UK. What we've learned from the American studies and what we've learned looking at our own UK students uh, in our recent surveys um, is that students first of all get very poor sleep. They get absolutely insufficient quantities of sleep and the sleep that they do get is generally quite poor quality. Uh, some, some surveys suggested as many as 50% of students might have a clinically poor level of sleep. Uh, so it would require some sort of intervention. Uh, their attitudes to sleep vary. Uh, they, I think it's improving from what I've seen. Um, it used to be the case that sleep was a waste of time as far as students were concerned it was it was lost drinking time or lost study time um, i think they're improving uh, we we did a sort of sleep education program on our campus a couple of years ago which i think hopefully helped a bit um, and we proposed to do something similar uh, again along those lines to actually improve education and students our students are now reporting going to bed earlier than they were um, but they do still have very inconsistent sleep schedules, which I think is a big problem. So they will have obviously some nights out or they will stay up all night to write their essay before the deadlines. And this will completely interfere with their sleep pattern. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I'm, as you can see, nodding and uh, can relate very much to what you're saying. But I've been talking to some students recently about sleep and, you know, they know what they should be doing. <laughs> that education is there, but there's that huge gap between um, theory and practice. Um, and, and I don't think students necessarily are unique in that, uh, but perhaps they have a few more nocturnal temptations than, than other adult groups, though maybe that's different in current times. Yes, yeah, for sure. I think the lack of routine in the day for most students, the fact that every day is not the same, they don't have to get up and go to work at the same time, whatever, unfortunately encourages them to think it's okay to go to bed very late sometimes and not at other times and to get up late sometimes and not at other times. So it creates a consistency problem which encourages those those bad habits. And, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They they know They know what they should be doing, but they're not always inclined to do it maybe we're all guilty of that oh we are i think yes i certainly am <laughs> but with that in mind even though it seems like general sleep hygiene education is okay do you think there are any major sleep misconceptions out there in, in student populations and more widely uh yeah i 
I mean, so I mentioned one which, fortunately, as sleep has has really moved up the the agenda in terms of public consciousness, is fortunately going out of fashion, which is that sleep is essentially a waste of time. That this is time wasted, and you should try to minimise the amount of time um, that you spend asleep. And you still hear it, hear people say this occasionally, um, particularly in the corporate world. Interestingly. Um, mm. But that one, I think, at least, is beginning to disappear. There are still other myths. Probably the most common one is that everybody must have eight hours sleep a day, a night, um, uh, which we know is not true. Firstly, people don't get eight hours sleep a night. On average, they are actually, it depends which survey you're looking at and which country you're looking at, but typically around seven. Um, and in terms, at least, of health outcomes, uh, actually around seven on a global scale seems to be more or less optimal so we're actually not doing too badly in that sense but it's very much an individual thing some people will need nine hours some people can get away with six hours uh, so it really never i think the, the big myth is that you must get eight hours and if you haven't got eight hours you're failing somehow it's actually it's it's a bit more individual than that I mean, I don't know if you hear this too, but sometimes I hear people say things like, but I'm fine on five hours or I can pull an all nighter and there's no <laughs> effect. So, um, I mean, I, I would tend to say that that's a myth. <laughs> um, do you tend to hear that too? Yes, I do hear that. In fact, I might be guilty of having occasionally said it myself in the past. <laughs> we're human, we're all on. human. <laughs> uh, yes. um, yeah, and it is, it's partly a myth so there's, there's part myth and part not here. There is a difference in susceptibility to sleep deprivation. We, we've done some tests uh, on people, giving them chronic partial sleep deprivation, so making these uh, poor unsuspecting participants uh, sleep for four hours a night over a period of time uh, and looking at the effects on then on daytime functionality, how well can you actually function, which in some sense is a measure of how detrimental the four hours a night has been and some people were all people were affected nobody was not affected so in that sense it's a complete myth um, but there was a wide variety in the extent to which people were affected some people just they really they couldn't even get out of bed without falling over uh, and other people were more or less fine they were just a little bit below where they were um, and survived um, but there was an interesting study years ago by um, Jim Horn's lab uh, from Loughborough, which looked at people, people's own self-perception of sleep and how much sleep they needed. And they found a lot of people said, I don't get enough sleep, I need more sleep. And there were also people who had impaired daytime functionality, suggesting that they really needed more sleep. But these were not the same people who thought they weren't getting enough sleep. So when someone says, I'm fine on five hours a night, it's probably not true. Actually, the people who are all right on five hours a night are often not the ones saying so. This is interesting. It is an interesting <laughs> distortion of self-perception, but maybe Absolutely. one that isn't dependent on sleep or sleep loss. That's yeah. really interesting. I mean, I'm interested in the cognitive part of your work as well, Simon, and, and again, thinking about some sleep myths. Now, I hear people say that they are unconscious when they're asleep or dead to the world and um, <laughs> you know implying that 
cognitive function or even brain activity more broadly just ceases when your head hits the pillow. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you're right. You've hit one of the again one of the biggest myths about sleep. There, isn't it? So sleep is is downtime, and you're just conserving energy, and your yeah your brain is just switched off for that period of time. And of course, we know that if quite the contrary, the brain is extremely active uh, during sleep, uh, reprocessing memories that have taken place um, during the day relearning experiences, moving things, reorganizing uh, memories, enhancing knowledge, uh, forming new connections, all sorts of things are actually going on uh, in the brain. And, and obviously we know even from dreaming, which I know you know obviously a huge amount about, um, that we're not just unconscious, that dreaming is very much a form of consciousness. Uh, so, so we are, uh, and obviously we dream throughout the night so not not even just part of the night but really throughout the night we're dreaming uh, so you are conscious while you're asleep you just may not necessarily remember it in the morning <laughs> yeah it, interesting distinctions and uh, it's interesting i think seeing in some pretty major scientific communications that authors will claim that your brain is offline which is a term oh, yeah. we tend to use and you know yeah. implying some kind of inactivity and also that you only dream during rapid eye movement sleep so i'm pleased you mentioned that because this is a, a biggie that is still spouted as if it's a truth whereas we know um we know aspects true. of sleep or throughout the night people can recall some activity whether you call it a dream or not there's something going on yeah absolutely yeah yeah it's it's definitely not just uh, not just in rapid eye movement sleep and we know from certainly from literature around memory and cognition that deep sleep um, so-called slow wave sleep uh, which is the type of sleep which is hardest to wake somebody up and there is a huge amount of of reprocessing of memories of replay reactivation of memories uh, going on during that stage of sleep and the amount of deep sleep you have is directly related to how well you will uh, subsequently remember things and so it's it's absolutely essential, and part of those experiences uh, are likely to come up in dreams. So if you wake somebody up in deep sleep, they might well be reporting uh, some of those things. So it might be that the deeper someone is asleep, it's just the more tuned out of their real external uh, world they are, and maybe more in tune with their internal world at that time it's exactly just very so. hard to remember that isn't it and to drag it over into waking when you're so tired and want to get back to yeah sleep. yeah we know i mean the area right in the middle of the brain called the thalamus sort of acts as a sensory gateway if you like uh, and we know that it takes more sensory input during deep sleep to actually get beyond the thalamus into the cortex so it is more cut off from from external stimuli during deep sleep, as you say, that precisely to allow more reprocessing, more uh, re-experiencing in some sense of, of the memories that were developed during that day and previous days. And we know we can, um, by presenting sounds uh, sufficiently loud, not loud enough to wake them up, but sufficiently loud to get past the thumbs, we know that we can actually influence uh, what they're thinking during that deep sleep as well and trigger the reactivation of particular memories by, for example, presenting associated sounds or associated odours even 
so definitely th those things are going on there. So this is a really interesting new and emerging development in terms of sleep science. But this seems to me still activity that's for the sleep lab. Do you ever see a time when we might be able to train our brains through these kind of associative measures in the real world at home in our beds? Oh, I do. And hopefully not that far off. It's, yeah, to me, that is absolutely the holy grail is how can we enhance sleep to enhance learning uh, or to, you know, to, to optimise sleep uh, in some sense. At least people seem interested in um, considering their sleep needs more than they used to. There seems to Absolutely. be a notable interest, I think, in the last five years or so. I think that's my concern is that people may think that, like many therapies, they can, ex <laughs> they can get external help to improve their sleep rather than necessarily being motivated to put the effort in themselves. And I think there still needs to be some degree of personal involvement in recognising I need to switch off, I need to take some time and maybe stop on the caffeine a few hours before bed too. Yes, that's true. Yeah, there is a whole uh, sleep therapy industry that's uh, sort of grown up in some sense, sleep coaches around of uh, varying levels of experience and, and qualification. Uh, it's nice that people want to engage uh, to help improve their sleep but you're right i mean ultimately it's something you have to do yourself your your sleep therapist can't sleep for you uh, so yeah and it's not that difficult thank you very much simon for the interesting conversation and i think it's interesting to see that we're sharing some of these challenges in the sleep world absolutely it's a pleasure and i uh, look forward to continue to work with you thanks simon The conversation with Simon was reassuring in some ways in hearing that we share some of these experiences of trying to overcome common sleep myths. But in others, I find it somewhat baffling that sleep, being something that literally we cannot live without, is not better understood and valued. It's disappointing that sleep is viewed and to get in the way of better things like staying up to watch a film, especially when, during sleep, our incredible brains can generate some of the most creative and incredible narratives all on their own. We'll dive into that wonderful world of dreams in the next episode. For now, let's remember the importance of sleep. That's the first step towards trying to improve it. We need to schedule it into our routines rather than scheduling in everything else. Perhaps if we pay more attention to our sleep and do so when we're well rested, we might be more accurate at identifying patterns and factors that might affect it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Sleep Science Pod. I hope you found it helpful. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Sleep and Memory. This has been a production by The Chancer Collective. And until the next episode, sleep well. <laughs>